word. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her a land, uh, her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty, for they have sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock, For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, Though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly, utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds." Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done. Cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in time of harvest because of the sword of the oppressor. Everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is a hunted sheep, driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him and now, at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. 
this far reading God's word. The first eight words of verse 1 introduce a large literary unit of chapters 50 and 51. The first eight words, if you'll read that again with me, the word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon. That introduces this giant section of chapters 50 and 51. So let me spend a few minutes to introduce those two chapters, and then we'll focus on these 20 verses. These two chapters, if you do read them this afternoon, will disturb you by placing God's exhaustingly gruesome devastation to some right next to his hope-giving tender moments of promise to others. The stark difference of the outcome of God coming and people meeting with God will strike you. And that's intentional. It's why I think it's helpful to take a few moments to introduce these two chapters. The They're doing two things at the same time, including our passage. They're announcing God's crushing judgment on Babylon and announcing as a direct result that the long-sinning, long-chastised exiles may now finally return home to their own land as God's redeemed and forgiven people. Two things at the same time. Crush Babylon, bring his people home. Two things at the same time. It's crucial to understand that about these two chapters. The language of these two chapters intentionally also takes us beyond this twin event of the fall of one ancient nation and the revival and homecoming, another ancient nation. Jeremiah uses throughout these two chapters global language on purpose to take us to our thoughts on a planetary level. How God deals with Babylon and Israel is meant to take on a symbolic weightiness for all generations and all nations, including our generation and even our nation. These two important chapters are presented to us as a picture of the future working of God's final and universal judgment. It's how God deals with humanity. It's presented to us here. God will judge any and all who stand against him in arrogant and evil opposition. And in tandem with that, God will extend his offer of restoration to include people from any nation. Not just his own people, Israel. People from any nation. He extends the offer. Evil will be judged and destroyed. God's people will be set free from bondage and from sin. So as we read chapters 50 and 51 these coming weeks, we are compelled to anticipate that worldwide accomplishment of Christ's first coming, his cross and resurrection. Beyond that, in these chapters, we're even persuaded to look for Jesus' second coming and the climactic events that will accompany his final arrival with those same two dual outcomes, both judgment and salvation, the destination of heaven or damnation. And so it's not surprising that these two chapters have a strong echo later in the Bible. The book of Revelation is another place you could read this afternoon if you have more time after reading these two long chapters. Namely, victory for God in Revelation will spell death for Babylon and all that Babylon stands for. And simultaneously, victory for God will spell God's people life. Life for God's people and anyone else who similarly receives from God that same restoration. So let me just read one quick sample, Revelation chapter 18. I'll briefly summarize by reading a series of phrases from it and you'll get the idea pretty quick. Revelation 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Come out of her, my people. 
For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself paid others back. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. In a single hour, Babylon has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. End quote. Those are quotations from Revelation 18. So for the book of Jeremiah and the Gospels for that matter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Revelation, an important question for Christians is resolved here. How can we rejoice while we hear the Bible talk about destruction? Destruction for Babylon? Destruction of Christ on the cross? How can we rejoice in songs about that? Have you ever wondered that? And destruction of God's people in the future through perdition and damnation. How could we rejoice at those things? That's an important Christian question, and it's answered here. Our mini-orientation, which I'm now wrapping up, of chapters 50 and 51, has already helped us to find that answer. It's found in the intermingling of judgment and redemption, as the two outcomes of the coming of the Lord are one God. We can rejoice in judgment, let me illustrate this way, the same way a victim's family in court, rejoices at the court's verdict of guilty against the vicious criminal. That family rejoices. How do we countenance them rejoicing in the guilty verdict for the vicious criminal? Because only when evil has been appropriately stopped can their blessings flow again. We understand this inherently already. Our lives are intertwined with the evil of this world, and so we are called to rejoice in the coming of the Lord that brings his judgment, as well as bringing his salvation, because it makes wrongs right. And we rejoice in it. We're called to rejoice in it. So that's our orientation. We'll now take our truth with us as we focus on the first 20 verses of Jeremiah. And here's the main point today. We anticipate rejoicing about the end of evil since God promised to destroy every enemy and save his sheep. First, God's announcing judgment concerning Babylon, verses 1 to 10. Second, his vengeance on Babylon, verses 11 to 16. And third, verses 17 to 20, his restoration and new covenant for Israel in the language of sheep and a shepherd. So first, verse 1 concerning Babylon. Uh, This is a bit surprising, since we might have thought we were done with hearing about God's judgment on many nations, chapter 46, 47, 48, and 49. We actually thought that we would hit them all. And we might have been thinking Babylon is kind of exempt, because Babylon is kind of the giant javelin or spear in God's hand, right? Uh, Babylon was the F-16 in God's army that caused the destruction, right? And so now... Babylon was working for God, and God's about to judge Babylon itself? That itself sort of surprises us a bit in verse 1 already. And then in verse 2, this new announcement that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon is supposed to be distributed far and wide, and instructions to do so were given to God's prophets, God's messengers. Listen to the many collected verbs of verse 2 all put together. Declare, set up, proclaim, conceal it not, and say... Say what? What's the big announcement? The big announcement. Babylon is taken. See it in verse 2? That's the big announcement. The conqueror who overtakes Babylon isn't even named yet. 
because it barely matters. The big news is Babylon is going down. Babylon is going down. The previously invincible Babylon has been overthrown. It's military, but already in verse 2, it has immediate spiritual implications because next are listed the false gods of Babylon. And when Babylon was defeated, the false gods of Babylon were defeated. The failure of an empire is the failure of its gods. Babylon's false gods were put to shame and dismayed, we read in verse 2. And then verse 3, out of the north has come up against her, a nation has come up against her, Wait a minute, for those of you that have been on this study of Jeremiah with me, do you remember out of the north? It was when God was announcing repeatedly that Jeremiah had, Jerusalem had sinned. Jeremiah is saying to them, an army from the north will come and destroy Jerusalem. An army from the north, and eventually it gets named. And it's Babylon that's the army of the north. And now God's speaking to Babylon and saying, you're going to get an army from the north. Wait, they are the army from the north. Oh no, God has another army from the north that he's going to use to attack Babylon itself. That's why I selected the title of the sermon, Hammering the Hammer, in order to display the big announcement, a reversal here. God reversed himself. He formerly was using Babylon. Now he's turning against Babylon and hammering the hammer. He's avenging the avenger. He's attacking the attacker. They become culpable, responsible to God for all that Babylon has done, even though they were under orders from God. This is surprising, isn't it? The purposes of God and the purpose of Babylon, which formerly lined up for so long, here now in this announcement, are suddenly at odds with one another. Babylon would like to survive, thank you very much. And God says, I'm taking you down. They used to be like this, and now they're like, this is a big change, it's a reversal. So formerly, God's people were called to submit to God by submitting to Babylon, willingly going into exile. Let Jerusalem and its temple be destroyed. You go off and live for 70 years like slaves. Submit to the whole process and trust me. Now it's different for Israel, isn't it? What is God telling Israel to do here? He's telling them to be ready to flee. Flee from Babylon. Wait, I thought we were supposed to submit Yeah, for 70 years, and then flee. Understanding this truth is significant for understanding the whole book of Jeremiah, the whole Bible, and I would submit to you, it's significant for understanding the whole of the future of the world, if that's not too dramatic for you. How God will deal with the whole world is unlocked by the cheat code right here. This is the key to understanding it. By the end of the book of Jeremiah, we're not left with, the Lord plus Babylon, he crushes Babylon and all we're left with is the Lord God. The lesson is so clear as we conclude our study of Jeremiah that we all must deal with the Lord and the Lord alone. It's an abundantly clear message. He alone will prevail in his own way, at his own time, with his own means, And that truth must be faced and accepted. And what are the implications for Israel? That's beginning to be answered in verses 4 and 5 with the good news of the forgiveness of God, the end of exile, the ability of them to come back home. The book of Jeremiah has had the exile as a major theme. And now suddenly 70 years has passed. The exile is over. The weakened exiles 
now in godly sorrow and in grief of true penitence, will be returning to Jerusalem, returning even to the site of the destroyed temple, and ultimately returning to the Lord God himself. That's what we find in verses 4 and 5. There's a strong echo of God's promise of restoration for his people as we studied back in the classic chapters of 30 and 31. It's a reminder here and a recap of the new covenant promise of forgiveness by the Lord God and a close relationship with the Lord God that's possible post-sin, post-discipline, post-Christ's judgment on the cross for us. A close walk with God is once again possible. So here we have a brief summary. If you look at verse 4, they shall seek the Lord their God. Yeah, but will God take them back? Yes. We have a beautiful and memorable statement of God in chapter 31. Let me just read a few words of it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me declares the Lord. You know that passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's what's being mentioned here in verse 4. They shall seek the Lord their God. That's what we've been looking for all along. The whole book is about we've reached that point where they want God now. He's changed their hearts. Verse 6, God's people used to be lost sheep. Familiar with that language? They previously had bad kings and priests who had bad shepherds and resulted in lost and wandering sheep, sheep without a fold, sheep who become at risk. So it's not surprising to hear consequences of that in verse 7, that the sheep of God are found by their enemies and devoured by their enemies. Notice that the enemies develop a theory when they're devouring the sheep of God. You know, it's because the people of God sinned against the Lord their God, and he caused them to go in exile. So... We, the enemy nations, are not guilty for eating sheep. I mean, lamb chops, is just not our fault, right? Their, their theology is being displayed for us in verse 7. But they're mistaken. They completely misread God and the whole world. Their theology is completely off base. They are culpable for what they did. Jump to verse 17. The image for God's people will descend down from lost sheep to hunted sheep, who had been already previously devoured by the king of Assyria, how could that get worse? Well, the new and worse situation for these poor sheep is now the king of Babylon is pictured as a second lion gnawing on the bones of the sheep. How's that an image for you? And as a result, we're told that in verse 18, God will bring punishment on Babylon just like he brought punishment on Assyria, both as lions devouring the, lion, the lamb of his people for actions they took against God's sheep. But back to verse 7. It's fascinating how these theologians of the Babylonians did not understand their role, but they understood the sin of God's people. If you look carefully at verse 7, they understood that the people really messed up when they didn't see God as the hope of Israel as he's supposed to be. The Babylonians even used God's correct and proper name, the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah God. The Babylonians understood the cost of sin in a way better than the kings of Israel had understood it. The Babylonians were astute enough to grasp the error of the ways of Israel that the only root of hope for the people was what their forefathers had known. Look to the Lord alone as your only hope. Verse 7 is amazing. 
Verse 8, even though this sin is the reason for Israel to have gone into exile, there's mercy in God's command to Israel to flee from Babylon as the eager first ones out of the gate, like when the gate of the pasture is opened, the male goats run out, and the lambs look around and say, huh, the gate's open. (laughs) And the goats are long gone. He says, be like the goats. Be the first ones out of the gate to come home from exile. That's part of why the exiles needed to be ready to flee, because God's judgment is coming. He's not messing around. And God is calling on the exiles to be ready to flee, not because of some theory of the enemies, their bad theology, but rather because of the covenant of God, which had so long been disrupted by this exile. And God is going to act to reverse the exile, to reverse his position on Babylon, and to reverse his position on Israel going into exile. You're coming home, is what our God, our covenant God says. He set up an everlasting covenant, remember? Seventy years is nothing. He hasn't forgotten. He's going to bring his people home. His covenant is what reversed the exile. His covenant promise is what reversed the destiny of Babylon. And it's what secured the destiny of Israel. So then verses 9 and 10 tell us the enemy from the north, whom God will bring against Babylon, is actually going to be a um, collaboration of various great nations from the north country, like a coalition of nations. All those nations will stand together against ancient Babylon. Babylon, who had been the hammer from the north, would now get the same fate as Babylon had caused on Jerusalem to be turned by a bigger hammer from the north, an alliance of these great nations. So we move to our second point, God's vengeance. Verse 11, listen how the prophetic poem started out by addressing Babylon as God spoke to them. O plunderers of my heritage... You don't want to hear those words. Let a shudder go down your spine when you are addressed by the Almighty God, O plunderers of my heritage. Right? If they just understood those simple words, they should be afraid to their core. What have we done? The sins of Babylon were to be greedy, to plunder Jerusalem, and he now gives the illustrations like a hungry cow in a green field, like an aggressive horse wanting to mate having no restraint, both illustrations. Babylon thought they could break all the rules <clears throat> excuse me, of civility and do whatever they wanted with God's people and never be confronted. But verse 12 says that Babylon knew better. Their mothers, which is here poetic language for the more noble history of the great empire Babylon, the way that they used to be, the great Babylon, the mother Babylon, taught them better But in these last days, in their dealings with Israel and Judah, they disgraced their heritage. They disgraced their mothers, as it were. Babylon failed to reckon with the Lord God. Babylon had known that these people living in Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel were the Lord's people, and that just as the Lord's own people must face God for their sins, didn't it ever dawn on you, Babylon, that you too would have to face the Lord God for your sins against His people? No, Babylon entered Jerusalem and became self-indulgent instead of self-controlled. Babylon ran loose and free in their animal-like frolicking, but now God announced the party's over. Verse 13 gives a hint that it won't be pretty because everyone who witnesses what God will do to Babylon will be appalled at all the wounds of Babylon. Verse 14, he began to address the new, unnamed, 
superpower coalition that was attacking Babylon. He changes objects now of his address in verse 14. This tells us why God will judge Babylon with all this phrase. For she, Babylon, has sinned against the Lord. That's it right there. Babylon sinned against the Lord and have to face him. Verse 15 confirmed that all this military activity against Babylon is properly understood one way. This is the vengeance of the Lord. Is that clear? Verse 15 ends with the statement, due to her as she has done. In other words, what Babylon had done to others, God will visit on their own heads, and that's expressed in verse 16. It strikes home to us as we reflect on these verses then that history is the working out of God's will on all of the nations, on all people that he has made, all people in his image. And it's the means of him shepherding his own people. He's never off duty of shepherding his people in the middle of it all, as we'll get to now as we move forward. There are actually two great intertwined reversals. The situation of sinning Israel in exile being forgiven and brought home is a reversal. And the situation of the hammer, Babylon, on top of the world, being brought down by God's order is a second reversal. It's a picture of what the future judgment of God will be for the world. Those who stand in everlasting covenant with God through Christ will be transferred from the realm of judgment to the realm of grace and forgiveness. All those who stand in flaunted rebellion against God will move from the role of aggressive plunderers to the realm of utter and permanent defeat by order from God himself. So we move to our third point. These final verses take us out into the prairie, the pasture, and show us a picture of sheep and shepherds. God's restoration, new covenant for Israel. Verse 17, the picture is of a shepherd and sheep in order to present God's dealings with his people. Israel was the vulnerable flock of sheep exposed to the danger, even called here hunted Sheep by ravenous lions. The two lions are identified. First, Assyria, then Babylon. So Israel's life, like a helpless sheep, has been lived under the threat of these two lions for a long time. There seems to be someone missing in the story. Where is the shepherd? Suddenly in verse 18, the shepherd shows up. This sheep-lion scene is changed when the shepherd appears and speaks. On behalf of his sheep, God will visit the lion Babylon like previously God visited the lion Assyria, and a pattern emerges. Whenever God visits the lions, good things happen for the sheep. Like what? The flock of sheep known as Israel gets to return to its pasture, now unthreatened by said lions. Verse 19, God followed through with his own analogy of tending to his sheep when he said, quote, I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on. Carmel and Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead, named places within their homeland. It's so clear. But this is returned to the situation they had before. What's to prevent the sheep in their own inimical weakness to have yet another fall into sin, yet another lion attack, yet another exile? What about their sin? They're back home, great, but what about their sin? What about their sin? And the phrase at the beginning of Jeremiah 50, verse 20 says, In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, which is a formula for visions about the coming Messiah and the age that the Messiah will bring. The vision he then describes at the rest of verse 20 is about pardon. 
and blessing, <clears throat> excuse me, belonging to the future time when the Messiah would come. So thankfully, a true shepherd has made provisions for the new arrangement that has factored in the weakness of his sheep. What about their sin? I have accounted for that. Let me tell you how. Verse 20. Iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin shall be sought in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. End quote, declares the Lord God. The flock of sheep received back their pasture, and this time they're secure in it. How? Fitting with the analogy of sheep, who took action to benefit this sheep? Their true shepherd. And notably, it was not their own former bad kings of Israel, and it wasn't, of course, the king of Assyria, and it wasn't, of course, the king of Babylon. Those were lions. Rather, this good shepherd is the true king of Israel, the true shepherd of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, who took action to benefit his sheep and to secure them. And the flock received back its pasture from their real shepherd. The very flock that had been lost in verse 6 is now found in verse 19. Despite their former shepherds having led them astray in verse 6, the sheep are now guided safely home in verse 20. They're home, safe, free, innocent, and unblemished by sin in verse 20. Israel, as they went into exile, were filled with sin. Seventy years pass. They come out of Israel and are cleansed of sin. What's the difference? One word. Pardon. It drives us to that word. I will pardon them, he says. No other thing solves the problem. It was this reversal, this pardon by the Lord that permitted Israel's life and story to begin afresh after the exile. They have new potential. They have new hope. The real determiner for God's people is not the governments of the nations over them or near them. It's not even the nations attacking them. The real determiner for God's people, militarily and especially spiritually, is the Lord God alone who gives his people life and then restores them to their good pastures after they mess everything up. It's the Lord who presides over, the Lord who limits, and the Lord who documents the threats against his people. It's the Lord who protects, provides, and pardons his people, the sheep of his pasture, like Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Does this not point us ahead to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd, says about himself, I'm the good shepherd who laid by my life for the sheep. That was the cost. That was the method by which the new covenant was fulfilled. What have we seen? We anticipate rejoicing about the end of evil because God promised to destroy every enemy and save his sheep. The restoration is ours and it's coming. I have these three applications. Number one, rejoice in the gift of repentance. It's all about pardon, but pardon is for those who he previously gave the gift of repentance. Verse four, in those days and in that time, the people of God shall come together weeping as they come and they shall seek the Lord their God. That weeping as we come is repentance, genuine, true repentance, that we are grieved that we have sinned against the Lord God himself. The weeping is the evidence of the repenting, and we're convicted and we turn from sin and wrong back to God. Like Westminster Larger Catechism 76 puts it, what is repentance unto life? 
Repentance unto life is a saving grace, wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. And upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Rejoice in the gift of repentance. Number two, rejoice in the full forgiveness of all of our sins. Verse 20, iniquity shall be sought, there shall be none, and sin shall be sought, and none shall be found, for I will pardon. There was sin everywhere in Israel. Just as you're reading this afternoon, read chapter 5. There's sin everywhere. Or chapter 20. This book has told us about their idolatry, lying, cheating, stealing, killing. Just a short list. But in verse 20, the guilt of God's people as if, is, is as if it vanished. It points us ahead to Christ who, as verse 20 says, in those days and at that time, the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus, all our sins are washed away. We're living in those days. We're living in that time. The hammer of God's justice for our sins fell on Jesus, and then he rose again. And in him, we rose again by faith. Christ is the good shepherd who came for us, cleansed our sins at the cross, and he took our sins and nailed them there and rose again. As a result, we have full forgiveness, full atonement. Can it be that God has pardoned all of our sins? In this we rejoice. Memorize Jeremiah 50, verse 20. You'll be the only one on your block who's got that memorized. <laughs> My last one, rejoice in the everlasting nature of God's promise as our shepherd. Why? Because it means we can't mess it up and lose it. We saw in verse 5, let us join, come let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant, and that will be never forgotten. God's promise is everlasting. It'll never be forgotten by whom? By us? No, I forget it all the time, so do you. It will never be forgotten by the Messiah. After what he suffered for us, do you really think there's ever going to be a moment that he forgets? It's the everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. I can't lose my salvation because it's secure in Christ's hands. I can't mess this up. In that, I rejoice. The people of Israel had bad shepherds, which meant they had bad kings and bad priests. The result was God's people became like lost sheep, being led astray, sinning against the Lord. Who was their home? Verse 7 says, the Lord is their habitation. The Lord is their pasture. He's the shepherd and he's our pasture. He's our portion. He's our song. In verse 18, the Lord is the one who restored them to their pasture. It's the Lord himself. We rejoice that we can trust in our shepherd to take care of us and take care of everything else we need. Military, financial, medical, all, yeah, all of it. If he's taking care of our souls, at that price, he will take care of all the details, and safely take us all the way home. Just like the believers then, we're called today to the same shepherd of our souls. Our desires of our souls shall be satisfied as we read in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. He restores my soul. Let's pray.